substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Kia ora everyone, it's your regular 1 or 200 co-host Kyle here Just a quick message before we kick on with the episode tonight And that's to get on board and help to triple the vote this is a really important campaign to get people signed up and voting. We've chucked the link in the summary, so check it out, get involved, and triple the vote with your friends and family. Welcome to One of 200, the independent media and politics podcast. We're here for a midweek episode where we get a little bit deeper into the issues uh, in lieu of our normal current events podcasting. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mark Rickaby. How are you doing, Mark? Kia ora koto. Um, I'm all right. Great. Uh, and very special guest, uh, Deb Takawa. How are you going? I'm doing great, my friend. I'm doing great. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to this. Hmm. Yeah, well, we've um, been trying to organise something for a little while. Um, it's so good to have you here with us. Do you want to just start by giving a quick intro to our audience about where you come from um, and what your I guess, area of study is? Oh, perfect. Perfect. I'd love to. Thank you, my friend. A little bit of whakawhanaungatanga before we get into it. Well, uh, tihi mauri ora, uh, inga mana, inga reau, uh, ki ora tēnā kōrua, uh, roa kauhautau. Uh, ki te kawe mai ngā kōrero, ka nui te rekareka mō te kōrua manawanui. It is a uh, me joining you here and looking forward to a very heartfelt kōrero. Um, for those who are interested, uh, no Waiapu Te Awa, no Ngāti Parau, uh, Te Iwi, uh, no Tikipati Marae, um, no Whānau Heriota, Manawera, Hainga, Sterling, Ka. And if you know the East Coast, that's a whakapapa of a whole lot of priests, poets, politicians and bureaucrats. And if you heard that Marae name, it was Tikapa, which is just down the road from Waio Matatini where, of course, the extraordinary um, Apiraranata hails from. So our little marae is right out by the coast, right out on the moana at the end of Waiapu, and, in fact, we are dealing, or Ahika are dealing with the slash right at the moment. So as well as being uh, proudly Ngāti I'm uh, also a governance and policy consultant, a former public servant, um, and these days, lecturing and tutoring at Canterbury University, finishing my PhD, where I'm looking at free and frank advice, what it is, why it matters, and how we get more of it. I'd say my research area, my interests are pretty much in the beyond Westminster or not. What does it mean to decolonize this system, if indeed we are? Quick summary, we are, we are beyond Westminster, and that's why things are creaking at the moment. We'll have that quoted all soon. And if you see me on Twitter, Fano, you know I'm really interested in performance because I think performance matters, information matters, otherwise communities can't participate. So that's me. Hopefully that gives you a sense of who I am, where I come from. As we caught it all today, I'll tell you a little bit more about the, if you like, the research whakapapa, the discourses that I lean on, which might give you some more insight into why I say the things I say and, and the positions that I hold. Hopefully it's useful. I'm sure it's going to be incredibly useful. This is not a conversation that you can usually have in public easily, mm. um, and especially not in the current digital age. Uh, you've had some fantastic threads. If anyone in the audience has ever come across those, trying to lay out step-by-step uh, step your thinking around uh, particular issues, such as um, the performance of, of the ministries and things like that, which have mm. been really helpful for informing my own interaction engagement uh, with some of those in the political sphere. 
Uh, but I just really think it's much more helpful to everyone to have a conversation about it and to really dig in um, and question it where we can. I think maybe maybe that's where we'll start then, seeing as we mentioned it already. Um, and this is something that hey, politically um, can be quite divisive because there's a tendency to attach political loyalty, um, especially party mm-hmm. loyalty, uh, mm-hmm. to to policies or to parts of policies. And a few weeks ago, ACT announced this performance uh, policy for the ministries around setting KPIs. There were also some things thrown in around uh, performance pay. And I think those were the two main thrusts of their policy. And you said, good on them for bringing this up. This is an issue. And the immediate response from a lot of people was, like, oh, no, we can't do anything in this space because ACT are the ones uh, coming out with it. They're the ones uh, promoting it. Uh, so it must all be bad. The flip side to that is... Look, sometimes there are problems with the way that we do things and someone we don't like is going to seize on those. It doesn't mean that problem doesn't exist. So do you mm. want to kind of take us through your immediate thinking around that um, and maybe we'll just go from there? Yeah, I will. I will just respond to that, friend, because I, in previous threads, have been quite critical of some of, um, and I'll use their name, acts thinking around performance, particularly in the regulatory space, because for two reasons. One, I think there's a lot more work going on in regulatory than than they have spoken about. It's a fraud and difficult space. Regulators are almost a different profession in our bureaucracy, and I really don't think a lot of care has gone on to the regulatory craft. And so I, I, I did a thread on why actually it would be appropriate to acknowledge all of that work. Um, And while I said, look, good on them for pushing the performance conversation, it was with a whole lot of qualifiers, right? Which is, you know, some targets can be perverse. Again, I think performance matters for democracy. I'll come back to that because how can people place trust without information? How can they understand harm without information? So I think performance information is critical, but I accept targets can be perverse, but I thought it was completely inappropriate for them to, and I've said this publicly in a couple of articles, that I think it's inappropriate for them to play in the chief executive performance space. So that was their policy, was to... um, uh, had performance pay reintroduced for chief executives. And the point that I made in those articles is that's deeply problematic because, look, I'll just go to one of the areas that I'm interested in. If if anyone was to describe what sort of academic I am, I'm what's called a, um agonist pluralist. So I'm really interested in conflict. I think conflict's a natural part of politics and a natural part of public management. And the area that I'm interested in is is, uh, democracy and bureaucracy and how they're always in tension. Um, Less interested in parliament, less interested in the elections, really interested in the way ministers and officials in the system work together. And my criticism of the ACT Party to um, reintroduce performance management was that because it takes both sides. It takes good ministers. It takes good senior officials. It takes a lot of shared working together, a lot of collaboration, a lot of shared concepts, a lot of agreement. And let me be clear on this, shared accountability in order to make a performance system work. And so I did say, look, I thought it was a retrograde step unless they were going to introduce accountability for themselves. 
And I also made the point that it could undermine collaboration because one of the things we really need from senior officials, and I think, I mean, the evidence is unequivocal on this, is we need them working together. And so when you start doing individual performance pay, uh, you undermine the collaboration because people quite rightly just take care of themselves. So just kind of addressing that, let's just go back to that placing trust. It's pretty hard if you're a citizen to participate, if you don't have the information you need in a way that's accessible in your language, using your concepts to work out whether or not to place your trust. And often that trust comes from experience. And I think performance and performance information is one way to do that. But look, as well as being a kind of agnostic pluralist, I'm also an institutionalist and I believe institutions can learn. I think they're human systems. I think they're practically wise systems. So when I talk about performance, I'm talking about accountability for learning, not accountability for a you know, a story in the Herald, if that makes sense. Have I kind of addressed your question, my friend? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. There's a, lot, um, a lot to think about there. Um, okay. I, um, I'm, I'm kind of I'm processing where I had some thoughts, but I just I, um, I just lost them. I think I'm I'm really interested in um, in this question about performance because. I think like a couple of things there that I'd respond to, just kind of curious about, because uh, I really struggle to comprehend the the overall system of government. I think um, the way that it's framed, you know, in sort of popular culture and in political media is completely different. And then the way that people talk about their own experiences of government day to day is a whole other thing. And then there's this kind of question where we talk about these kind of ministries being siloed and, you know, no one's talking to each other. And there are these tropes around um, around bureaucracy, which are you know, quite common across lots of different cultures that have kind of emerged, I guess, in the, the, um, with the emergence of bureaucracies and these sort of social liberal democracies becoming too complicated for like a single person to actually hold in their head, like all of the different moving parts. Um, there is this sense of like, what do we mean when we talk about performance because I feel like it's really easy to say hold up these big kind of red flags in public and rant about underperforming or throw a bunch of stats around but um, like how do you actually engage with something that complex and really pin it down to like a um, um, because you know people can talk about outcomes but um, often that's um, outcomes to me are about like design and changing things Uh, what happens when it's like about retaining something and not having something fall apart. You know, there's so many different levels that government might be responsible for and the public service might be collaborating on. Like, what what do you mean when you say performance? Wow, right back at you, Mark. There's a lot of ideas in there. Let's just start with, so we'll come to performance, but I'm going to work my way through a couple of issues that you've tabled, if that's all right. One of the really fascinating things, I think, about our system right now is that people's experience of government and government services leaves 82% of them trusting government. People's perception of government has them at on the brand public service, has them, I think, at about 54%. Like there is a massive disconnect between people's actual experience and perception. So the question then becomes, What do we do to close that gap to improve trust and confidence? 
Because, you know, when we don't work on improving trust and confidence, the, the same 20% just don't access services, right? It's an equity issue. So then the question becomes, how do we close that gap between actual experience and perception? Well, here's one idea. Stop politicising the public service, right? Stop making them a target, right? The, the, the second thing then becomes, okay, so what has the service got to do in order to explain at this moment in time, ministers ask them to do this. They're working away on this. Some numbers are going up. Some numbers are going down. Here's what they're going to be doing to make sure the numbers are going in the right way. It's a complete. It's managing for learning outcomes. It's not. It's not managing for complaint and red flags and red lights. It's a completely different way of thinking about performance. I'll give you this too. I'm kind of, as well as being an institutionalist and an agnostic pluralist, I'm pretty into phrenesis, right? I'm I'm just into practical wisdom. If you were to look at my resume as a public servant, yes, I spent a lot of time in public policy, but I spent a lot of time in operations. So I'm interested in what the front line has to say. I'm really interested in the enacted practice. I'm interested in those really difficult decisions street bureaucrats make, you know, what is good, what is right, what is best given the particular set of constraints they get to work in in the particular context. And when you go to the practically wise to look for an answer, you will find it. You will find it. That's the sort of performance that I'm interested in. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I like the BPS results. I liked them because what they did is they kept the pressure on both the political authorising environment and the administrative authorising environment on what the concept was that they were chasing. You might, We might think some of them were perverse, and there's probably some public servants who will speak to you freely about why they didn't like them, but you know what? It kept the agreement in that purple zone between the politicians and the officials about this is the thing we're chasing, and we're chasing it for this reason, and the numbers look like that. In the absence of that, who knows what's going on? Who knows what concept someone has in their head versus the other concept of performance someone else has in their head? Just for our audience, can you just give us a little crash course on the BPS? Sure. So this is a uh, the better public service. Well, they're not new, right? So outcome res- out- the idea of outcomes actually started with um, Jenny Shipley in her last um, uh, few years, and they were called the strategic result areas. And every, I think there were eight in total, and every uh, chief executive got a key result area. They weren't shared at that point, my recollection is. I think they shot home to one chief executive at a time. Miss um, Clark, in, in her administration, introduced families young and old, and she had a set of performance measures under those concepts that she started chasing, I think, in her 2005 budget. And then when the key administration came in, remember after the GFC, is they sought advice from um, uh, the officials through the Better Public Services um, Task Force, and that task force suggested result areas, and then those result areas were built between, I think there were 10 in total. Uh, They were built between ministers, ministers, plural, and officials, plural, and then working groups or accountability arrangements were set up the fascinating thing about these BPS result areas is that no one chief executive or minister could do them on their own. So they sat in that liminal impact space, which is if one chief executive and one minister 
um, just kind of dominated the corridor, the result wouldn't have been gotten. It needed the collaborative and joint effort. So I think they're online. They might have disappeared as, as you know, the public services want to do with previous administrations. Anyway, I hope that helps. I hope that helps and answer. I hope that answers the question about BPS, but I hope it helps the question about performance. What is performance? It's for learning. It's public. It's information that's reported to communities so they can see progress. And it's reported in a way that helps build their trust confidence and their ability to place or not that trust and that confidence. Um, it's an interesting way to think about it because often people see performance as, you know, you succeed or you fail, right? Um, yeah. This is the, like, if you've got KPIs at your job, um, if you're not meeting those performance uh, indicators, uh, you might get fired. Um, and it feels like that's the way a lot of this conversation uh, occurs, uh, in the media, um, between politicians, uh, a lot of the stuff is often used for gotchas. So as soon as um, politicians start talking about performance indicators, little red flags start popping up for myself sometimes, you know, for, for other people listening to it um, around, okay, what's this being used for? What is the political reason that this is being brought up? How do you get past that narrative? How do we have a, a proper conversation around this that, isn't couched in those terms? Such a great question. I don't know because me just doing, you know, tweets and threads isn't, isn't, really isn't going to get us anywhere. Um, I'm not alone. The Office of the Auditor General has pointed this out last year several times um, and uh, and a lot of people are leaning and using on this research. I think it's part of our maturity, possibly, but I offer the counterfactual. I think we can see what happens when a when the political and administrative authorizing environment doesn't take the community with them on, we said we were going to do this and look what we've done. And then we did this and we then we did that tick. Now we're doing the next thing and we learned to change it like this. Like the thing, the performance conversation at the moment is a is an accountability one. It is a let's catch someone out, let's blame someone. If you were to read into the literature, um, there's a fellow called Bovins who talks about it for learning. And I'm just hoping that at least before, you know, I finish my time on earth, that we get our system into that, uh, you know, outcomes for learning point, because it's deeply costly when a government just thinks it's about every three years yeah. and not the daily seeking of mandate by pointing out what it has done and what it is then going to do next. Well, that's such a good point. That's so important, I think, to recognise that these systems are um, they're systems. They, uh, they operate on an ongoing basis. There's not this sort of static kind of um, state that then changes. What I was going to ask um, on that is, do, can you think of any really good examples of reporting back to community and how this kind of, this understanding of performance um, has actually worked where people, like people in the community, um, were brought along um, and could see that adaptation and learning as, as part, of, part of that? Such a good question. I can think of really small initiatives and I can think of a program. And one of the things, by the way, that often irritates people about the way I think is because I've got a treaty lens, right? So I'm pro good governance. Like I want the kawana to be a good, you know, doing good tanga. But also I'm very happy to see um, um, 
services devolved to iwi, Māori and um, in particular whānau order provision. So just to point out to what I think is an excellent example of this is the whānau order outcomes framework used both across um, uh, Paumatakanga as well as Putahitanga. But they have a beautiful outcome framework that does impact and it does outcomes and it does um, outputs. And if you're a community member and you've received funding or you're an individual that sought funding, is you can fill in, right? You can then fill in how you think your initiative has changed one of those posts. And it's entirely self-directed and learning. And the beautiful strength of it, I think, it not only addresses the, oh, we thought we're investing in this, but look, we got that. And everyone can go, oh, how did we get that? What We thought we were getting an economic outcome here, but we ended up getting a rangatira and a reo Māori outcome. What, what was in there? So people get to learn, but also it's self-directed. And so then the language of impacts, outcomes and performance becomes a community conversation, right? It's, it's, it's the just, it's pretty special. The thing that I think special about it is that it's uh, pretty much self-directed and learning happens at a whānau level. And so that means amongst community within whānau that they're then learning their own language of outcomes and impact in their own world and the things that matter to them. They are mapping the alignment between inputs, outcomes and impacts. And we don't see a lot of that. Most of the stuff that comes out of the Tanga is that they will determine the outcomes that are gotten. I think that's pretty special. We saw some stuff around the... Um, the Canterbury earthquake recovery, but, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like that got overwhelmed by the bureaucracy. Yeah, that's a um, something I'm learning about having moved to Christchurch more recently is the um, the very mixed sort of outcomes from, from huge, the huge change in the city and huge um, investment. Um, yeah. And it's not like it, you can't really say it's as simple as there are winners and losers, but... Uh, what I feel is has happened, which I think is interesting, and I still don't really understand it as well as I'd like, is that the, um, through such a large change, these new organisations were spun up. Uh, a lot of lessons were learned, sometimes tough lessons, and that's just sort of sitting there, like it's not kind of actively yeah. dispersing um, in the ways that you kind of might expect. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it just seems very symptomatic of... Um, of this, I don't know if it's it's not like a local decision making thing. It's sort of like this very strange kind of glacial pace that things kind of get locked into. And there's this sense of like, yeah, communities can have their say and they can give feedback, but ultimately central government just kind of puts its foot down and drives these situations. But then that decision making doesn't always seem to be the pivotal thing that leads to the actual outcomes. Things on the ground and discoveries through the process of doing it actually lead to the outcomes, but that that knowledge isn't feeding back. Um, and yeah. it's not often not even acknowledged that the reason why something was successful was because of, say, the structure of the organisation or the network of people that was involved or the specific decisions that were made around funding in terms of like the operations rather than just the allocation of funding. And, and then it just gets played out in a spreadsheet level, so like, this worked and this didn't work um, and it all gets yeah. kind of rolled up and we don't see those lessons kind of um, like cross-pollinating, if that makes any sense. Look, it makes perfect sense. And again, this comes back to this, you know, performance and learning 
conversation that, you know, I've been pushing, which is I think people genuinely believe that policy is made in a room and it's, you know, you join the dots, you kind of colour by numbers, and then a minister makes decisions. I genuinely believe there are some people, particularly on Twitter, who thinks who think that's how policy, in fact, there might be an incoming government that even thinks that. Yeah, but you know, um, you know what? We, we teach our, when we're teaching, we we don't teach that paint by numbers or join the dots anymore. Like we teach punctuated equilibrium, right? We teach multiple streams. We teach policy as narrative. We teach Overton windows, right? These are the way policy gets made in our system is through that tension, conflict, and interaction between the networks, which are often private, iwi, Māori, you know, third sector, and the officials, and ministers. And if you don't have performance information, you struggle to get a voice, right? Because the performance information will say, this thing is good, or this thing is bad. If you don't have performance information, you won't ground your investment into the baseline, right? You won't get sustainable permanent funding. So anyway, I could go on forever about <laughs> the importance of it. I'm not going to, but yeah, we might we might have a conversation yeah. about the yeah the policy oh, advisory well. system if you want. <laughs> well, we have this this great innovation, and in, um, we're no longer doing Boolean on off. We're doing traffic lights. <laughs> I want to, um, wait, do I want to do this? I hate to, but I will um, invoke this um, because I, I think it applies to both this this policy narrative as well as some of the ways in which people interact with institutions and performance. And that's this drive towards uh, comms and PR to present uh, these political tools essentially um, as as either this or that, like as a specific set of things as opposed to a process. I mean, you said, you know, people think policy is just made in a room. I'm not even sure that's the case at this point so much as policy comes in a brochure. You know, it's something that is like on glossy paper, it's a list of bullet points, and probably people don't even really deliver it. It's, yeah, uh, that's it's re relates to the term that's sometimes used to describe big um, IT, public service failures as like announcement as achievement we're like just make, making the policy announcement as the as tick we've done it and then the same with the ministries like this is this ministry it does this um again with little understanding about how the how it works or so this ministry is failing um or yeah how do we this is not an answerable question i don't think you know we're having this conversation now to try and unpick that but it seems in the current political ecosystem that is the only conversation we're allowed to have in the sense that if you try and have more nuance, it's like, well, vote for the other guy. Oh, I'm lost. Keep talking. I'm lost. <laughs> so this, I think like Kyle's I think just I trying get... to fix a really, yeah. really hard problem. <laughs> How do you make people understand that things are processes and not um, policy doesn't happen in a vacuum and it's not a command and control framework? Is that what you're saying, Kyle, or is it different Beautiful. to that? Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I'm with you now. Sorry. Okay. I needed that. I needed that. Okay. What is so bear with me and and kind of um navigate me back if you if you need to. Because you you're throwing that's quite a quite quite a few big ideas. Let me just respond with a couple of 
um, just lay some planks down. Firstly, I believe there's a policy advisory system. And in that system, lobbyists are valid actors. So are iwi Māori. So is any third sector organisation. So are the consultancies, like it or not. We hollowed out our state. We decented and dissolved, uh, devolved it. So the consultancies are valid contributors. Parliament is critical as oversight. Ministers commission and you know, commission the advice, right? But you know what? The public service and the policy advisors in the system are critical because their role is to understand the context, not be driven by it. Their role is to make sure that they clearly identify the problem, they understand the root causes, they understand the opportunity that the minister wants to open, they understand what it means for the current policy settings, they have a deep understanding of what it would mean for implementation, i.e. is this thing implementable? And they can offer up minister's advice. But you know what else it has to be? It has to be non-partisan, right? That's the difference. And so, I, look, I have no problems with, you know, out on the hustings. Remember, I'm not a political scientist who's that interested in politics. I'm a political scientist who's interested in political theory and behavior and its impact on public institutions. I'm pretty agnostic about some of the policies. Some bother me. Um, and I'm pretty agnostic that they're not fully fleshed out because it's then the job of that policy advisory system to go to work, right? So, and every single part has a role to play. Now, I have no problem with the consultancies because actually they've got all the talent right at the moment. If you want to turn that talent off and put it back in the service, well, the service is going to have to pay for that. So anyway, so that's my kind of response to that particular issue. I want to take it a little further, my friend, because I think then the question becomes, who's fit to govern? What is their theory of governance? In, our, in public management terms, there are, um, there are four theories that we play with. There's hierarchical, you know, the up and down. I delegate to you, you delegate to someone else. It's a deeply controlled system. The uh, 88 reforms to our public service and actually some of our markets introduced the idea of market governance. Then as a response to the failures of new public management and the new liberal ideas into our public management system, we started playing with this idea of network governance. And it was an acceptance that there were too many silos, it was too fragmented, people were absolutely not joined up. And so what we saw, it kind of started in about 92, was the emergence of all these networked arrangements. So you'd have an issue and then you'd actually need all the people who were affected or carrying risk around the table. And of course, that became a bit of a problem because the people around the table were the ones who could afford to be there. And so we've seen the rise of this fourth concept of governance, which is community, right? It, which is community playing an active role in uh, public policy and in political decision-making. Sometimes we hear it as collaborative governance. We've heard it recently as co-governance, but it's also deliberative governance or active citizen participation. And so... The question I think that we're facing, put aside, put aside the, the content of the policies at the moment, others are better placed to criticize those. 
My question is always, what is your theory of governance and are you going to be able to implement your idea because your theory of governance, by the way, they all have to be hybrid, but you have to be clear about the one you're using, is one that is going to get the outcomes that you seek. Is that all right, my friends? Was that too fast? It was a lot there, but it was really, really interesting because I think um, we hear this term co-governance thrown around. And um, I, I mean, I'm so used to it now because it's just become propaganda that I just like it's just a word. But when it first started happening, I was really confused by it because I was just like, isn't this just how things already work? And and it's people are screaming about this new thing and this big change. But I'm like, but isn't this just the way that things have been operating in lots of different spheres? Um, and so it was really like quite challenging to figure out what was going on. And I, I thought there was some big agenda that Labour had for a while. And then I realized it was just like, <laughs> it was like nudges. It wasn't actually like a big agenda at all. It was just maybe being more explicit about some of those relationships that had developed over time and then specifically it was like actually about some specific policies but the wasn't criticism of the policies was framed as this kind of universal um and then it became like kind of race baiting and sort of um very very targeted um but it was like it was so confusing but i feel like is that is that a public education issue or is that just simply just like kind of propaganda and partisan people getting their hands on on things and, and using them to their own ends? Uh, look, I'm. Um, you're talking about civics education. Um, you're talking about, I mean, I, so I think yes, and I think yes for this reason. I think that the public management system that we have is dealing with increasing complexity, inexplicab- inexplicability, like some things we simply yeah. cannot explain right? We just, there is, no matter how good the science, we really can't explain. So given how complex it is for the service, I do think we need a government that can demonstrate a theory of governance. And look, I'm with Jeffrey Palmer on this. It's time for this conversation. It really is. It's time for, you know, this whole, look, we've now spent, we've gone from old public service to new public management, We've done new public governance through the new um, Public Service Act. We're trying something called new public service. The whole thing, I mean, it's good. There are more tools in the Chief Executive Toolkit. There are some tweaks at the margin. The whole thing relies on an idea of public service motivation, the idea that public servants join up because they want to serve. I just, I, I don't know whether or not the entire public service design and all of its institutions are fit for the kind of challenges that I've just listed that we face. I'll, I'll add a fourth a fourth challenge, pluralism, right? I tweeted about it the other day. Different communities want to participate. They don't want to just rock up and vote. They want to actively participate. They want to be active citizens. They want to be involved in deliberate conversations about the things that affect them. Well, I'm not quite sure our current system is going to get us that far. So, look, I'm all for, you know, the Royal Commission on the public sector that we need for the future. That would be fascinating. I think um, just having a conversation about um, in depth that kind of has like... um, it sort of happens over a longer period of time. It feels like a lot of these things becoming aware, like people are busy, right? They have a lot going on, um, dealing with complexity in their own lives. And so there's a lot a lot of people rely on these kind of ad hoc explanations that maybe they learned in social studies 
back in whenever it was that they were at school. Um, I don't even know if social studies still exists at high school in that form. Um, but I think that's what I'm something that I grapple with is thinking about people are often like, oh, civics education. I'm wondering if if actually the missing link across society is um is like systems, like understanding complexity and actually integrating complexity into the way that people perceive things like perceive institutions perceive like social formations i feel like one thing about the reforms here is that um maybe we're a little bit behind on some of those innovations in terms of the moving moving people kind of their um their mental models and perceptions of how things work um we are quite small in population and that that could also have an impact but i do like and i, I guess coming from like um uh, design perspective and you know being very yeah. interested in game design and teaching game design right that's all about systems and um and i feel like there's some there's some knowledge that exists that we have about um understanding complexity and connecting things and making small changes and watching them propagate through a system and it should be reflexive like it should just be at your fingertips like we have this knowledge about linearity you know like we can look at linear systems and we we get them because it's drilled into us at school that you can have these incremental and decremental relationships between things. But we we fail to educate people that linear things are just one model of relating one thing to another. And like nature doesn't really work like that. Human society doesn't really work like that. Um, economics, in fact, doesn't really work like that. Um, and things kind of boil down to these narratives. So I wonder if there's just like um, we have, um, and that's possibly also the sort of the gap between um, people's engagement with day-to-day and their understanding of like what they think um, their, their trust or their perceptions of, of government is and that they don't have, they experience this kind of integrated adaptive um, sort of local kind of context and knowledge and it works. But then when they actually think about, oh, how does government work? It's like, oh, it's all bad and it's all consultants and all these kind of catchphrases come to mind. And there's just this, this gap because people aren't really prepared to actually engage with things that are complex. I don't, unfortunately, don't have any like good answers there, but it's something I do think about a lot because I feel like there's like more general kind of problems as well as the specific problems. Um, I guess one more thing I'd say there is just, I feel like one of the, maybe I'm not sure if it's a weakness, but something that I feel is quite challenging in discussing all this stuff is that a lot of the, um, you mentioned those different models of, of governance, Deb. Like I feel like, especially with the networked model and the um, the the collaborative um, models, so much of it relies on good faith. And, and that's that's really tricky to me because it's just so hard to, to kind of mediate and actually kind of assume good faith in so many situations today. So just to... Um for my own clarity, just to repeat those models of governance, the old hierarchies, right, control, markets, the 88 reforms, network as a response to those forms where, you know, small groups of influencers managed to get around the tables. And actually, to be honest, some of the crown entities and SOEs went a bit rogue and started running their own shops. And then, of course, the fourth aspect is community. And inside of community is where deliberative, active citizenship, co and and collaborative governance sit. You know, and the best example we've got of collaborative 
or actually, yeah, no, it's, it's a collaborative governance, probably co-governance, our boards of trustees, and we've had them for some time. Now, there are some good arguments for them and some good arguments not for them. What they do is they take decision-making down to a community level. And in building the ability to govern and the ability to govern kids, tamarikis, educational outcomes, we've built quite a quite a capability in there, which I don't think we use a lot. But I wouldn't underestimate it either. If I just think about the, um, if I think about the, uh, you know, the Canterbury sequence of earthquakes, it was the schools that kicked into action, right? Um, and then who wrapped around families and communities. So there's something about we're able to do this. We've been doing it for some time. We do actually have this capability in some of our, in many of our communities. I want to just take us to briefly, though, um, a piece of research that I did for Tupuni Kukuri. And what I did, they asked me to look at vaccination uptake and they asked me to, and it's public, so it's been published. They actually had me look at vaccination uptake because they could see in the numbers it was significant for this particular fund, but they couldn't track it and they didn't understand why. So anyway, I was able to prove that this fund made a difference to vaccination uptake, quite a significant difference actually. But I also was able to interview about 70 people and using a whole of some really serious math, get underneath the why. why. Why was this program so successful? And it's got a number of elements to it. But the first element is this. When they designed the fund, they placed the investments with what were known as trusted messengers. These are the people in your town, in your village, who everyone trusts. They have very little to do with the crown. They're not of the crown, but they are trusted by the community. And this fund in particular centered that person and made sure they had all of the information they needed in order to have the gab before the jab, right? Trusted messengers are critical, particularly in those remote and rural areas where the Crown, where the Kawana has exited its services. So there are ways to do, to build uh, deliberative approaches to include people in policy that rely on trusted messengers just not the crown having to do everything all the time. The second thing that we found in um, this research is this concept of tanga. And in fact, you hear the officials at Tiara Fiti talk about it all the time. I mean, if you wanted to do a podcast on the crown Māori relationship, which I think of as one of amnesia and disremembering, we can do that and talk about, you know, the moments the crown remembers and then it forgets. This idea of amnesia, Māori and iwi never forget, never, ever forget. And so those officials who had had relationships on the ground, I call them the street bureaucrats, I call them the weavers in Tiao Māori. These are your frontline team leaders who know everything and who've been there for their entire career. They're not quite trusted messengers because they're not of the service, but Fano can look to them and, and rely on the information they're getting. And that reliance comes because they just come round for cups of tea. They come to the marae, they do the dishes. They know who needs help which whānau needs uh, assistance right now. I call them the weavers. They're the street bureaucrats. 
you know, if I could tip the policy advisory system on the head, I'd have them leading. So I think there are the point that I'm making is there's um, oh, look, the other thing that they, these officials did is they just released the kind of compliance burden on the fund. You know, stop trying to fill in 50 forms, just fill in one form well, and here are your outcomes. We'll come back and report on them. Like, I say this like it's obvious, but it's not obvious to everyone. And so, look, I found this in this particular fund. It, the numbers were off the chart. And, and so I think it's possible for us to have a different public management system. I think there are real strengths in our system. I think the ability to support a trusted messenger, the ability to care for the street bureaucrats and the weavers, make sure they've got the right amount of discretion, and the need to just reduce the compliance burden on everyone, like that would get us a long way. And that doesn't have to be system change. That doesn't have to be civics education. Like it's, again, back to performance, the everyday practical experience of achieving ground with someone because you said you would do what you would do. And here you are again for a cup of tea. It's kind of oddly simple. It and makes, what is a really complex so arrangement. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it makes so much sense, you know, and it, and, um, it ties back to what you said about the um, how organisations operate on received wisdom and heuristics and, like, that's actually the real magic is yeah. that, that context and, and also the relationships between people. And I feel like, like Māori people just that's, like, not even a thing that they challenge. That's just like, of course it works like that, but it sometimes um, it goes against what we're taught as to how things should operate or it's not, you know, it's not systematic or rigorous enough. Or I don't know what, what it is. I, I think there are probably some factors around um, the sort of like managerialism and economism that also yeah. drive some yeah. of those, um, those intentional yeah. sort of blockers. Um, certainly yeah. around like means testing would be an example of um, a sort of a fixation that exists in, in policy. And it's often like can lead to overcomplicated outcomes that maybe cost more than the sort of purpose of the policy um, and you get these sort of perverse kind of things happening. Um, but that's yeah. maybe where like ideology kicks in. But I feel like, like it's, yeah, like when you start really breaking things down and get into the weeds, it actually seems to make more sense. And it's like the, yeah, it's about community, isn't it? That's also why you see, you know, you're talking about bad faith engagement with these issues as well, Mark. You know, you're outlining some very clear ways in which things can work, Deb, and, uh, things that could be removed um, or made easier. And some of those just end up becoming catchphrases like cut red tape, right? It's responding to a need within the system or like talk to the people on the front line. That's become a buzzword over this election campaign around, oh, we'll keep frontline staff, you know, we'll, we'll trust in our frontline staff because the electorate, the, the people who are engaging with these services, engaging with the communities, understand that these are the spaces of tension. This is, this is where things work or where things don't work. Um, and it comes back to what I was saying before, like how do you get past overwhelming narrative being pushed to, to reclaim that um, at a at even a decision-making level, if not the, the community level, we like actually, we can't just cut red tape that just throwing up buzzwords isn't going to work for us. It doesn't get us where we want to be. Yeah, I think, look, I think... You're right. Again, remember, I'm a bit agnostic. Even though I'm an agonist, I'm agnostic about the politics. I see those slogans they are. What I'm now looking for is whether or not the officials are preparing to grab that slogan and pull it into operational policy, right? 
Because actually, to be honest, I have no problem with, and I speak as someone who works with regulators and helps them with their funding models. I, I know a, a bit about regulatory systems. They are systems that have to constantly prove that the benefit of them outweighs the cost. They're not just about, oh, we're going to make, you know, we're going to reduce red tape. Oh, there'll be more harm. Yeah, no, that's not how it works, right? Sometimes the rhetoric on the left is as bad as the rhetoric on the right, my friend. Actually, I can see how some regulations, particularly in the primary sector, are, are deeply problematic. I'll give you a really specific example. We don't account for learning. We don't think about, it shows up in none of our cost-benefit analysis or regulatory impact statements. If you're on the farm, what we don't account for is the amount of learning that you now need to go through and take your family through on a regulatory change. We don't account for the psychological cost of that. So imagine, you know, you're not quite doing something right and there's been a, a rule change that will cause you problems. You might delay engagement with that particular reg until it's too late and then you're already down a path. We don't think about that in our regulatory systems. We do not think about, you know this, Mark, the, the human, this is empathetic, right? This is empathy and change. How do we account for someone else's learning? How do we account for the fact that they're freaked out about this change? And actually, the Ponakitanga pushes out a lot of forms to be filled in over and over again. So, yeah, I get it. I get the red tape thing. But actually, I'm hoping there are some officials that are in there that can actually start doing, releasing this burden on some of our communities. Sorry, I know that's going to piss off a whole lot of people on the left. Oh, that's good. <laughs> no, I, think it's, I think it's important to grapple with because I think um, – I think, like as a designer, I I get really frustrated when I hear the the people on the right that I disagree with kind of owning and claiming that rhetoric of like waste because like I've spent yeah. my whole career trying to figure out how to do things efficiently and how to organize systems that that don't generate waste or aren't wasteful and I think I'm pretty good at it, you know. So I feel like like. Um, I'm frustrated when it's just not sort of that's not considered as like that people and I think in general like most people who are conscientious and um, and just you know want to be helpful they don't people just don't um, don't don't generally want to waste for the sake of waste but what 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 isn't really being engaged with I think when you, we hear this this sloganeering like cutting red tape like there's a ton of two sides to it there's like um, that like people people get accused of, of not doing cost-benefit analysis when that happens all the time. And maybe it's the assumptions underpinning it that need to be talked about. Um, it's really important. You can't, you can't deliver anything unless you are basically um, are, are able to budget for what you're building. Like that's just the nature of making change. Um, nothing will work like that, but we sort of, we don't, we don't have enough information often to make good calls about, about that spending but that's kind of that's getting into the sort of detail i think what what really what's really going on is this kind of um there are commercial benefits to getting rid of certain regulations and so there's a there's an incentive to to lobby and push for that um so there's kind of two sides to it there's like making making processes more efficient and more effective and actually you know being less wasteful which is is always a good thing um and 
then there's the side of it that's like that is just used as a kind of cudgel to um to in you know um support kind of corporate and powerful interests and um and sort of buy out politics in that way so i think there's like there's a tension there and it's quite it is quite difficult to talk about and i think there is a certain tendency um to feel challenged by confronting that because it does does question some sort of not say cherished beliefs but it is it's certainly not the narrative that we've kind of we we have sort of grown up with i guess on on the left um and you know seeing there but i i think that's like to to me that's something that i've always found kind of interesting about some of your twitter threads deb is that you you hit that you hit that nail on the head you just confront that directly and you're um you're you're it's like government needs to justify how it spends money government needs to justify yep. what it's investing in and and how it's absolutely things um you can't like that should be a baseline expectation and it shouldn't be a partisan thing um that's just like how to have a functioning society that's not like a kind of a potentate and just messed up dictatorship where like things are just spent on like extravagance and it all falls apart in 10 years yeah i was going to say as well like it may piss people off on the left but for people who it does just have like reflect on that um, and ask yourself yeah. why and why has the right been able to capture the language around that in a way that immediately just switches you off yeah and you've seen this happen in a range of different really important spaces which are really key to ongoing human society um free speech is another really good example where right-wing interests have really claimed that space for yeah, themselves so the liberal values have been yeah captured there and it's been pulled yeah. away to this um, yeah but these are very basic, very yeah. basic um, tenets of governance. Like you should be doing things well, and you should be seeking to make like find efficiencies. Um, and if there are better ways to do things, you should you should change. Uh, and I mean, the other thing is, is like if you're serious about being on the left, you want system change. You know, you're not going to be able to get that without shaking things up a lot. And some of that's going to be changing the way that. Uh, those systems work, uh, whether regulations or otherwise. So no, I think it's a really important conversation to have. Yeah, um, something I've yeah. wondered on this is just kind of, um, I guess, this narrative about neoliberalism and you know the 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 arc of of history, and 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 wondering whether there's this sort of desire to go back. And I just think like maybe that that relates to how things were in the 1980s, but. It's just like path dependence is, I think, one of the greatest concepts that economists have come up with, and it's unfortunately not as as widely utilized in our popular discourse as it as it could be. But I I just think that um, at some point we need this broad social acceptance, like through everywhere, that that we're going forward, like we can't roll things back. We we can develop and we can change, um, but we have to sort of accept how cemented neoliberalism and individualism has become and confront that um and and develop and evolve and move forward and i'm sure there are um some interesting um differences in how people perceive what that might look like but i think just generally it's just thinking through this this understanding that you can't go and change the past um yeah which yeah it's just obvious but it's also like yeah maybe it's like more of an emotional thing for people to, to to move through i don't know i often find that yeah, the critiques of neoliberalism just um just kind of they falter because they don't tend to incorporate that understanding of like how thorough and wide-ranging the changes have been 
and that we have we have we have to deal with the things that are in front of us right now we have to take take the system as it is that's sort of all we can really work with until close but i do want to just end on this because i think it's a beautiful launching off point neoliberalism in the area that i study showed up as new public management it is very command and control it's a the theory of governance is entirely hierarchical, but leaning into markets. Yeah. And so the declared role of the state is very little. Um, and one of the big consequences we saw of it is the separation, you know, that concept of capture, which is completely overstated in the literature. So we ended up moving our big diligence outside the core public service, you know, the waka kutahis, the um, NZ trade and enterprise, all of the schools, um, the ACCs, the universities, we put them at arm's length. And what we and I think that's the deepest damage that has been done to our system because what we lost was the theory and practice of implementation. And what we lost were the consolidated service delivery models. You walk around the Punikitanga at the moment, everyone's got their own service delivery model, probably several. Everyone talks operating model, again, like the service delivery models, they've got several. And so the biggest consequence of the 80s reforms for me, apart from all of the damage that it did to human beings, is and is that separation of, of policy and delivery. To the point now, and again, remember I said it before, the role that the policy advisors play, that officials play in the policy advisory system is they're nonpartisan and they tell a minister what is implementable. They have a statutory obligation to do that, right? They're the only ones with that obligation. As good as many of them are, they're not great at offering advice on service delivery. And what worries me about the rhetoric that we've seen on the right is a return. And I've been very critical of the New Zealand initiative because I... With a couple of exceptions, there's Eric Crampton, I think, is thinking on regions, economies is outstanding. But their kind of, you know, institutional economics, principal agent thinking, it's from a different time. We learned that that didn't work. It has done more damage to us than good. And it that kind of worries me that that thinking is returning because it's wasteful and entirely insufficient for the challenges that are ahead of the service. It will not solve the problems of intractability, of inexplicability, of complexity, of the fact that communities want to say it is it is entirely aggressive towards those things. So that's the thing that worries me about the right. Again, you know, put aside the policies, it is that kind of thinking um, about governance is the thing that worries me. Yeah, well, I think we've we've talked about that similar things, um, maybe in more of a, a vibes-based way, not so kind of technical, but I, I mean, I'm definitely very aware of that and kind of I've been incredibly concerned at it from a leadership perspective. Like I think the worry, the worry that people have about the National Party right now is that it sort of Liz Trust kind of governance that um, Luxon is just listening to this sort of advice and just taking it as as given. But I don't, yeah, I don't know how we get beyond that because I feel like we are so far. Through, we've got so many good ideas and deep understandings of of, of systems and um, and acknowledging those um, all the things that we've discussed. Um, it's out there, you know. People can go and learn. Like we just have to acknowledge learning and adaptation and and incorporate that into into the way that we do things. Um, maybe that's. Um, Maybe that's part of the challenge. I mean, I'm um, 
there's there's so many directions I could go with that, but I'm just I'm um yeah I'm sort of not like sort of stuck for words, but I'm just trying to figure out how to summarize it all because there's some such big topics here. What do you think? What do you think, Kyle? I don't think it can be summarized, and I'm okay with it not being summarized. Yeah, you know, like people spend all their lives doing this stuff. Well, I think like part of it is like at least as a designer, I, I I've been trained not to jump to solutions. And I feel like you, I want to fix things, you know, I want to make things better. I want to figure out how to do that. But I think an important first step is just situational awareness and just really understanding the detail of, of what's happening. And I, I think we are not as far along that path as we like to think we are. Um, and so I think that there maybe there's a bit of a time, and maybe that is independent of, of partisanship and which party ends up winning the election and coalition arrangements and blah, blah, blah. There's just a general level of, um, and maybe this speaks to the point about the New Zealand Initiative in 1970s and 1980s ways of, of thinking that um, more situational awareness, more knowledge of what's out there, uh, less resistance to like academic kind of um, knowledge and um, intellectual um, and cult, sort of intellectual culture, uh, that would be great. Um, and if I can contribute to that in a small way, I'm really happy to do so. I think I'm, all I'm doing is just like pointing at the the sign saying "Don't jump off the cliff" and going like "Don't jump off the cliff." I don't really feel like I can do much more than that at the moment, but I'm interested to try. I like that. I like that. That question of what then is our responsibility. I can't answer it well. I mentor a number of young public servants. I teach some. I, I In my consultancy, I pick to do research that I think will shine a light on something. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've got anything else to add, my friends. I think I, I really wouldn't want to be a public servant at this point. It's fucking hard yards, mm. right? I just, I just. That is hard, hard work. And I worry. I really worry for some people in the service. I worry, you know, because I think they're exhausted. I think there's a whole lot of people who did some really hard yards in COVID. I think the services suffered through that great resignation period. I think there's been a lot of churn because, you know, the private sector in Australia have been paying big wages for their skills. And so I think there's a lot of people just kind of working several desks at the moment. And now they'll be under the pump to get ready for a new government. It doesn't matter if it goes left or right at the election. It's going to be new, right? It's going to be entirely new cast. And, uh, yeah, I, I I have nothing but respect and awe, but no envy whatsoever for the task they have. And I hope that's what I do with my Twitter threads. Every now and again, I might call you know some behaviour out, but I hope that what I'm also doing is saying, don't fuck around with this asset. It's a taonga. I might not like a lot of things that the kawana dungs, right? I think it completely intrudes on rangatira tanga, sometimes intentionally, sometimes stupidly just kind of walks into places. But um, like it or not, it's the asset that we've got. I've worked in post-conflict nations who are trying to rebuild their services after conflict, I know how special these things are, but how we're we're putting it under a lot of pressure right at the moment. And I hope that's what my tweets do. Do they do that? Well, I I enjoy reading them because it just I feel like it's it's fitting things together that I didn't have language for. It's right. like putting putting a framework to things that I had sort of guessed at or kind of in, in intuitively understood, but 
I didn't have a language to talk about. So from that sense, less it works with me, but I'm obviously, I'm, I'm not a normal person. <laughs> I can't speak for like, for that. Yeah. And look, in the end, you just have to keep having conversations about it, right? Whether that's in a Twitter thread or publishing a paper or, you know, over a coffee or whichever. Yeah. Um, it's about building that community, uh, reflexivity, um, and, and like the, the community, the institution of the community, uh, almost in itself. I was thinking of things like, um, you know, the idea of tenure within a workplace, like institutional tenure, the, the longer that's been around, um, and the more people are able to engage with it and, and plug into it, um, and understand it as, um, even as an edifice, the better able they are to contribute to that community. It's that that we're really at risk of, of losing. That's right. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's worrying. Um, but I think this is a good place to um, end it for now, the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Deb. I hope that was useful that you've got. Have you got something in all of that? I've got so much. Yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely okay. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I really appreciate it. Some some fascinating insights. I think um, it's not often that I'm just kind of hit by so much stuff that I'm like, oh, <laughs> what are, usually I've got a lot to say, but now I'm just like, whoa, that's actually a little bit mind-blowing. Um, so if you've achieved oh, that, I'm that's sorry. Quite, quite an impressive achievement, really, to to make oh. me go, oh, second, um, very, very smart and focused. Maybe that's the the fuck bupper as well, the Nata Poro and you that I'm just like, whoa. Um, so, yeah, no, really, really good. I don't um, Magic. I think Magic. We, hit, we do hit these really tough problems and I think that that is just hard to talk about intrinsically so um, yeah. that's okay right it's like at least trying to sliding around the the big asteroid we can at least see what its surface looks like and start to dig into it excellent yeah. um, we'll book one in for once we get post-election for Te Shiti and Kawana Tangaranga Tiratanga and the amnesiaing and disremembering by the crowd Fantastic. Um, yeah, we can probably friends, find some great people to talk talk with you on that, actually. so Excellent. Hey, look, I'm just going to tell you a little story so you can use it. It'll help introduce me. One of the things I didn't tell you when I opened up is I leaned into my Ngāti Kurautanga. What I didn't tell you is that my mum is Irish Catholic, and she met my dad, saw him on a, a rugby league field, decided she wanted to marry him, and mm, three months later they were married. <laughs> But we grew up in Wellington, right? So my dad was a wharfie and my mum actually was a cleaner at the Public Service Commission. So while she was carrying me, she was a cleaner at the Public Service Commission. That's not the story I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is I was at St Mary's. So I went to St Mary's College, which is right next door to Parliament, right? So there's Parliament, there's Hill Street and there's St Mary's. And when I was at St Mary's College, I got to my fifth form. I used to wag school a lot. And there were two places I used to wag school. One of them was the place called the New Zealand Room. And James K. Baxter's um, partner, Jackie Baxter, used to be there. And she used to see me wander in. And she used to make, she was the librarian there, the chief librarian. She used to sit me down. And she used to give me the A to J's. So the appendix to um, uh, the Journal of the House of Representatives. And she'd give me a big one and she would say, look, you can stay here and not go to school, but you need to work your way through the journal. And so I got a real insight into the 1800s and all the petitions and the engagement between, um, you know, the state 
and um, the Crown, but also between Māori and the Crown and the settler state. So you see the resistance happening in the A to J's right back in the 1870s all the way up until now. But the second place that I used to wag was at Parliament. So if I wasn't <laughs> going to, I know, right? So I used to I used to sneak into Parliament and listen to question time. And this was noticed by a number of MPs and ministers who saw this kid up there in her Catholic school uniform who then got in touch with the Sisters of Mercy at St Mary's College and I was allowed to wag there as long as I did the dishes in Bellamy. So my first job was as the was as the kitchen hand at Bellamy's if I was, in fact, going to wag school. So I think that's one of the state secrets that we never talk about. <laughs> wow. That's extraordinary. I so thought I had a wayward past, but uh, yeah, a cake. In the 90s, yeah. we, we wagged school by going down to Mid-City and, and Manor Street. <laughs> it's very different. <laughs> yeah, no, sad but true, sad but true. So... That is how I come to these things, and I think is also a combination of my mum cleaning the Public Service Commission, of Jackie Baxter making me read the A to J's, and the Sisters of Mercy and members of Parliament colluding in me wagging school, so long as I did dishes, I think brings me to this beautiful natural point where I just pontificate all the time about public management systems. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's absolutely fantastic. That's gold. Okay. Take care, my friends. It's been amazing. You're very generous. Thanks so much once again. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Do our exit spiel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, Share it. Let people know that we exist. This has been another midweek podcast. Everything's in the summary as usual. Deb, just quickly, do you want me to link your Twitter profile to your name in the summary? Fantastic. We'll do that as well. So you can find Deb's Twitter threads there that she's referenced a couple of times during this podcast. We might have another midweek podcast coming up in a couple of days, uh, but otherwise, look out for our current events on the weekend. We'll catch you there. If our fences are then I'm living a pointless life, but I'm learning all your lessons. Fucking politics is no distinction. The words are now is paid with good intentions. And I'll admit that I'm at a loss for what to say when they cross the cross. Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell